Father God, would you help all of us as we approach uh, the calendar year of getting closer and closer to Easter, which is just coinciding now with uh, where we are in Luke. Father, may we just stand in awe of what you have done for us, what you accomplished for us on the cross. May this be the center of our lives. May this not only be what saved us, that brought us out of darkness, but Father, may it be what sustains us to the end. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this year on June 6th will be the 80th anniversary of D-Day. And I had the privilege of going on a leadership uh, training in, when I was in Army RTC during college to Normandy, and it's a trip that I will never, ever forget. And if you're not familiar with D-Day, at this point in the war, Germany was taking some losses, but they were not giving up much ground. They had essentially taken over the continent of Europe, but Hitler's forces were spread thin because they, had not only, they were not only fighting the Allied forces on the west, but they had awoken the giant, the Soviet Union, in the east. But Hitler still had the upper hand in Europe. The Allied forces could not get a footing in Europe due to Hitler's fortified forces on the coastal lines of Europe. And so it was decided that on D-Day, on H-Hour, the Allied forces would invade Europe in hopes of winning back the continent of Europe. When I visited Normandy, I could not get over standing on the beaches and looking at the sheer boldness that the thought of even invading this part of the coastline of France would have taken. You stand on the beaches of Omaha and you look up and there's 50-foot cliffs straight in front of you. And so when these soldiers hit the beach, they were immediately in the face of the Germans. What were you doing when you were 17 or 18 years old? I want you to imagine being fresh out of high school and looking at evil straight in the eye like that. I want you to imagine the fear that might have paralyzed them. But I know some of you here don't have to imagine this because you've lived through war. We have historically called this generation the greatest generation because of what they did during World War II. These men laid down their lives not only for their country and the free world, but more importantly, for the brothers standing beside them. As my wife and I were reminiscing over this, we couldn't help fighting back tears thinking about their sacrifices and what they did. Yet how much more do we stand in awe of the one who faced sin and death and said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the perfectly obedient and spotless lamb, willingly laid down his life for us, stared into the eyes of evil, and said to each and every one of us, I'm doing this for you. This certainly seems like a savior worth worshiping. My hope this morning is that you leave here more and more in love with Jesus because of his perfect obedience to the Father and his willingness to take on all of our sins. And this will be our main point this morning. We can trust the Father because Jesus trusted him for everything. We can trust the Father because Jesus trusted him for everything. And Luke is going to show us this in two ways. So kids, if you have your bulletin, these are going to be the two points this morning. First, we will see that Jesus did this by submitting to the Father. And then we will see that Jesus did this by resting in the Father. So submitting to the Father and then resting in the Father. And so our first point this morning is going to have two subpoints. The first subpoint is prayer and spiritual warfare. And so we're going to begin this morning by doing a bit of a Bible study. So if you have your Bibles open, I invite you to look at verses 39 through 46. I'm going to read it again. I just want you to listen for any repeated phrases or themes that might be there. So starting in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So I think the most obvious repeated phrase in this section is the pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke uses it twice, once in verse 39 and then again in verse 36, or 46. And so you'll notice that these two lines act as like a bracket to that whole section. And Luke is purposeful in using this tool. He's not only highlighting what's in the bracket sandwich, what's in between, but he's also giving us an insight on how we should read this section about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke writes in verse 39 that Jesus and his disciples went up to the Mount of Olives, to the, what is in your text, the place, which Luke is assuming that we knew that this was the garden, as was Jesus' custom. Therefore, this trip up to the garden to pray was a regular thing for Jesus. This was not a novel or a new thing. Yet when they arrived at the garden, Jesus exhorts the disciples with him to pray to not enter into temptation. There was something different about tonight. Mark in his gospel records that Jesus specifically asked them to not sleep and to pray. If the theme of temptation is ringing some bells in your head about the last time temptation was made a big deal, you're probably thinking about Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And if you want to go back even further, then you'll find yourself in the garden in Genesis 3. And this isn't a mistake, and we'll hit on that in just a little bit. However, here in the garden of Gethsemane, even though Jesus would come under deep opposition, Jesus seems here to be more concerned with the disciples and their obedience than himself. Look again at the text. Jesus doesn't tell them to pray for him and the opposition he's about to encounter. Instead, he tells them to pray that they would not enter into temptation. So by bracketing this section with praying to not enter into temptation, Luke is showing us that the veil of spiritual warfare is being lifted. Luke is showing us that Satan, the lion, is prowling around looking for someone to devour. Jesus had been warning his disciples several times that his hour had come. Just last week, we saw Jesus telling his disciples that he will be numbered with the transgressors. The hour of testing had come, and instead of being ready for it, the disciples slept. We live in a very unique time in history. We live in a period of time that loves to fantasize about the magical and fantastical world, worlds like Harry Potter or the Star Wars universe. We fill up movie theaters to go watch these stories that transport us away from this world because we think that this life is boring and dull. Yet this scene from Luke shows us that we are being lullabied to sleep by the enemy. We are being put under a spell that says that spiritual warfare in the spiritual world is fun to think about, but isn't actually real. Yet Luke and Jesus are screaming to wake up. Wake up from your slumber and from thinking that this physical world is all that there is. Jesus is saying, pray, get on your knees and pray that you would not enter into temptation. Pray because the enemy is real and he is trying to sift you like wheat. There is a spiritual war going on and you are woefully inept to fight the enemy by yourself. Tyler talked about that last week, that if we were standing on a battleground with us and Satan by ourselves, we will lose every single time. You need God's help. So as we move through the rest of this passage this morning, keep this at the forefront of your mind. We are not just stepping into a garden. We are stepping onto a battleground between Jesus and the forces of darkness, and this battleground cannot be won through human effort. It can only be done through the one who has triumphed over evil, in which this leads us to our second subpoint, Jesus' prayers of submission and anguish. And so we're going to read 41 through 44 again together. Starting 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So I think a good first question someone could ask after reading this text is, what is this cup that Jesus is asking the Father to remove from him? And this is a fair question, because as we've worked through Luke for the past several years, we have seen Jesus take on everything. He's taken on the crowds, he's taken on sickness, he's taken on death, and the religious elite. But here, we have Jesus asking God to remove something from him. The Bible uses the cup in a couple different ways. It could be symbolizing blessing, salvation, destruction, or in this particular case, it's referring to God's wrath. In Psalm 75, verse 8 says this, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. You can see from the psalm that the cup is from the hand of the Lord himself. It is being poured out to all the wicked of the earth, and all will not only drink it, but they'll drain it down to the dregs. Notice that the psalmist doesn't say that some will drink of it. It says, all of the wicked of the earth shall drink it. Just like when God judged the earth with the flood, all of mankind was brought under judgment. Therefore, this cup, this cup of wrath, is for every single one of us in this room. There are no exceptions to this. So then, the second good question asked from this text is, why is Jesus asking for the cup to be removed from him? This question literally came up while discussing the sermon about the Lord's Supper a couple weeks ago. If you remember, Tyler talked about Jesus desirously desiring to eat this meal with them. In other words, he was doubly desiring to die for the sins of the world. So how do we get from Jesus desirously desiring to die for the sins of the world to him asking the Father to remove the cup from him? As we've seen, as we've been working through the Gospel of Luke for the past two and a half years, we have seen Jesus that was in perfect relationship, even though it was at a distance with God the Father and God the Spirit. And though it was at a distance because of the incarnation, he was still in relationship with them. But here, we finally see that this, his mission to seek and to save the lost was going to be through him drinking the cup of wrath that was meant for you and for me. And by drinking this cup of wrath, Jesus would take on all the sins of the world. This was Jesus fulfilling what John the Baptist yells when he sees him at the Jordan River, when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in, in this moment that Jesus takes on our sins, past, present, and future, Jesus would cease to be in relationship with his Father and with the Spirit. He had never not been in relationship with them. Jesus, the Son of God, did not become the Son of God on Christmas. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has always been in relationship with his Father. There was no beginning and there was no end. And I want you to stop and think about that for a moment. There was never a beginning. He was always in relationship until this point that he is about to come to. And so Jesus, the son of God, came to the final intersection on his journey to the cross. And at the end of this road, he would no longer have the relationship that he had always had. But make no mistake, this did not catch Jesus off guard. For this moment had been foreknown since before the creation of the world and had been foretold and promised since Genesis 3. If you have your Bibles, I uh, invite you to open to Genesis 3, verse starting in verse, starting, excuse me, starting in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so from the third chapter of the Bible, we see the promise that there would be a war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. God promises that there would be one who would come that would bruise the head of the serpent, 
But also take note that God says that it would only come through the serpent bruising his heel. Therefore, Jesus had to be bitten by the serpent. He had to be bruised for us. And how does he do this? He must drink the cup of wrath meant for us and bear in his body the penalty for sinning against the God of the universe that you and I incurred from the day we were born. And in doing so, by taking on all of our sins, Jesus would experience the chasm that we have always known since birth, but one that he had never experienced. This is what led Paul to say in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus wasn't changing his mind and saying that he no longer desirously desired to be poured out. And I need you to hear that very, very clearly this morning. Jesus was not desiring to change his mind. Jesus was anticipating the separation from the Trinity. He was anticipating the moment that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus not only had to die, yes, the crucifixion was horrible, but what is more horrifying is that the one whom John says all things were created through became accursed for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him he might, we might become the righteousness of God. And what amazing love is this. This is why the gospel is good news. The only one who could redeem us and save us, the only one who could bridge the chasm between us and God is the one who became a chasm for us. This moment of what would appear as the weakness or fear of Jesus is actually the moment we see the heart of our Savior the clearest. We see what it cost him to save us. We no longer needed animals or birds to be killed in our place. We didn't need another man to disobey and ultimately disappoint us. We needed the God-man to obey perfectly for us and die in our place. We see this perfect obedience in Jesus' immediate words after he asked the Father to Jesus after he asked the Father to remove the cup from him. Here we see Jesus say, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so in this we see Jesus' perfect obedience and submission to his Father. We will see the answer to that prayer, to Jesus's prayer in the following weeks as Jesus is put on trial, as he is beaten, and as he is hung on a cross. But before we see the answer to Jesus's prayer, we see something else embedded in Jesus's prayer for the cup to be removed from him. For it's in this petition by Jesus that we see Jesus's absolute trust in the Father. Jesus trusted his Father enough to ask for another way, and trusted that if there was, that the Father would graciously provide it. But Jesus also makes it clear that if there wasn't another way, then he would provide it himself joyfully and in submission. You see, the last time that there was a man in a garden with a tree of temptation and a decision to obey or disobey was all the way at the beginning of Genesis 3. The Garden of Eden was filled with everything they they could ever want to eat. But Adam was given the command to not eat of the tree of good and evil. And instead of believing and trusting God, Adam chose to disobey and and become like God himself and ate. And so when faced with the decision to obey God and take him at his word, Adam chose disobedience and momentary satisfaction. Yet here in this text, we have a new garden, and a new tree, and a new man. In the old garden, there were trees of every kind. In this garden, however, there was just one tree, the cross. In the old garden, Adam had Eve to counsel with. In this garden, his dear brothers fell asleep, and he was alone. In the old garden, Adam was told not to eat of the one tree, 
In this garden, God the Father wanted Jesus to eat the fruit of only one tree. But instead of not trusting his Father and not doing his will, we see with high definition clarity what perfect obedience looks like. And this is what gives us hope. We have hope because the trajectory of the first Adam was sin and death. But the trajectory of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus in the new Adam is life and life eternal. The curse is broken. We are no longer slaves to our passions and to our sins because Jesus obeyed perfectly for us. But why is this important? Why is this applicable to my life now? First, I want to say something to the kids in the room, and I'm so glad that the kindergartners are here this morning. So kids, I want you to hear this. This cup that Jesus is asking to be removed from from him was meant for all of us. It was meant for your mom. It was meant for your dad. And it was meant for your brother and for your sister. No one escapes this. Not even you. And no amount of good things that you do for your friends or for your family or obedience to your parents can ever save you. And this sounds really, really scary. And I'm not going to lie to you. It is. It's literally the scariest thing in the world. But I want to make sure that you hear this clearly. God is just and holy. And because he is holy, he hates sin. He hates sin more than anything in this world. And because we've sinned, we can no longer be with God. And that is why we have to drink this cup of wrath. But that is also why Jesus had to come. And guess what, kids? He has. Jesus has come. And he has drank the cup for you and for me. So come, put your trust in him. Put all of your trust in him. And if you do, if you put your trust in him, then one day you will be able to walk with God in the garden again. And this is the greatest news in all the world. But now to answer the question about why this is important for our lives, the key is to look at the cup that Jesus was about to drink. Jesus perfectly obeying and submitting to the Father is good news. The greatest news in all of history. It's the reason we all sit here. Sunday after Sunday, the news that endures Christians to be persecuted and martyred for their faith is this. Those who have put their trust in Jesus will never have to drink from the cup that Jesus asked to be removed from him. Those that have put their trust in Jesus will never, ever have to drink the cup that Jesus asked to be removed from him. The anguish that Jesus would suffer on our behalf passes from us. We now get to drink the cup of Jesus' blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. The cup of wrath is no longer ours. Jesus' prayer for the cup to be removed from him becomes true for us. Though the Father chose to not remove it from Jesus, Jesus willingly drank it so that it would be removed from us. We will never, ever have to experience what Jesus experienced. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you will never have to experience what Jesus experienced. You will never have to cry the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is why we sing, brothers and sisters. This is why we worship Jesus. This is why we preach Jesus and him crucified. This is why he is mighty to be praised and worthy of all honor and glory. And this is why he is worthy to open the scroll. And this is why all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. May you worship this Jesus. May you worship the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In these couple of verses, we see a great contrast between Jesus and his disciples. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus was trying to tell the disciples that the time had come, that the hour of darkness was here. He did this by calling them to pray to not enter into temptation, as we spoke of earlier. He was calling them to fight, not with weapons and arms, but with prayer. 
and not with their own strength, but strength from their father. But what did they end up doing? Look at verse uh, 45 again with me. It says, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. It's clear from that single word sorrow, the disciples were starting, starting to finally come around to the idea that Jesus, their friend and their Messiah was going to die. But as I said earlier, it's also clear that they did not know that the hour of testing had come and was here. All that they had experienced that week, the triumphal entry, the clearing of the temple, the heated debates with the religious officials, Jesus prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem, and finally the Lord's Supper. It was all coming and hitting them at once. This was not going to be a big Taylor Swift era's tour for the disciples and for their Messiah. The once hoped for victory looked like it was heading for a tragic ending. And despite all of this, Jesus calls them to obedience, even when their feelings and emotions tell them to curl up in a ball and to cry. Have you ever found yourself so distraught, so unable to process something that you find yourself trying to numb yourself by scrolling on your phone, looking at social media, binge watching a TV show, or simply just sleeping? Is this not dissimilar to what the disciples did that night in the garden? They were overcome with sorrow. Their emotions were overwhelming them, and they fell asleep. Now, in first read of these verses, I think we can read this and be like me and say, well, that makes sense. They were sad. They were overwhelmed, and they fell asleep. And you don't have to live long as a human to quickly realize that emotions get the best of us a lot more times than we want to admit. And Jesus also knew this, for he was not only the one who created us, and gave us emotions, but he came down in the incarnation, became 100% human, and felt emotions as a human. Therefore, if the one who created our emotions and knows what they feel like tells us to do something to help us, we ought to take note of it. So Jesus, knowing that their emotions were about to overwhelm them, tells them to pray. Pray so that they would not enter into temptation. In verse 44, you see Jesus in such agony that he is beginning to sweat like he's bleeding. An angel has to come and minister to him. But what does Luke say he does? He prays more earnestly. How many times have you prayed more earnestly? Or how many times, yes, how many times have you prayed more earnestly? Because after praying for a period of time, you realize you're in more anguish than when you had started praying. We worship a God who leads from the front. Jesus not only gives the orders, but then he shows them what it looks like in perfect obedience. And so you have two case studies here. On one side, you have the disciples who are instructed to fight with prayer, but they disobey and they become overwhelmed with sorrow and they fall asleep. And then on the other side, you have Jesus who is in anguish. He is being assailed by the enemy and the thought of being separated from the Trinity. And there will be another, never be another person in as much agony as Jesus was in that garden, yet he prays. Jesus obeys perfectly and shows us what obedience looks like. And he knows that his human body can only take so much. So he goes to the infinite father with spirit in prayer. Therefore, when we are scared, when we are overwhelmed, when we are in anguish, when our emotions crash over us like a wave, we can still obey. And Jesus tell us how to, tells us how to obey here in this text. We pray. When we are sorrowful, when we can't see the light and the darkness is swallowing us up, we run to the one who is light in himself. And maybe you're hearing this this morning and thinking to yourself like me, I can't obey. And then my answer would be, you're absolutely right, you can't. But he can. And this is why we needed Jesus. This is why he had to come. We needed Jesus to obey for us. And this is the gospel, brothers and sisters and friends here. The gospel says that Jesus did everything required to save us from our sins and reconcile us to God. Not me, Jesus. Not my perfect obedience, Jesus' perfect obedience, not my works, 
his works. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, or you're worried that you haven't done enough to earn heaven, then I have the greatest news for you. You can trust in him this very second. It's not too late. Put your trust in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus' name, not yours. Put your faith in his obedience, not yours. Jesus is anxiously waiting for you. Not a single moment of Jesus' life and ministry was wasted. Each and every moment that is captured in the Gospels is meant to point towards him and for us to love him more and more. And in Jesus' darkest night, a night in which he experienced the greatest distress and anguish, we get another picture of Jesus, our Savior. Jesus is the one whom we draw close to in our darkest nights because he knows what it's like to be in anguish and despair. Jesus is not unaware of the dark nights. Instead, he took on our darkness so that we could walk in the newness of light. So whether you're a believer in this room or not, hear these words from John Bunyan who so beautifully captures our Savior's heart for those who are in Christ and in need of help out of darkness or for those who are still under darkness and have not put your faith in him. Listen to John's words. He says, Surely they that come after Christ in chains come to him in great difficulty because their steps by the chains are straightened. Or it's uh, straightened is another word for like inhibited. And what chains are so heavy as those that discourage you? Your chain, which is made up of guilt and filth, is heavy. It is a wretched bond about your neck by which your strength fails. Is this not the dark nights that we feel? Our chains are heavy, our guilt and our filth are too much. What are we to do? But come, though you come in chains, it is glory to Christ that a sinner comes after him in chains. The chinking of your chain, though troublesome to you, is not, nor can be obstruction to your salvation. It is Christ's work and glory to save you from your chains, to enlarge your steps and set you at liberty. The blind man, though called, surely could not come swiftly to Jesus Christ but Christ could stand still and stay for him. True, he rideth upon the wings of the wind, but yet he is long-suffering, and his long-suffering is salvation to him that cometh to him. So run to this Savior. Run to this Jesus. He is waiting for you. We're gonna transition to our second point, and I promise the second point is shorter than the first. I think a pretty common reaction to this section of the passion narrative is this. Is Jesus in control? Throughout the entire book of Luke, and especially through Holy Week, from the time of the triumphal entry until now, Jesus has been in control. These events, while they caused great sorrow in the disciples, also pointed to Jesus being in complete control. Even as he predicted his betrayal, his death, and resurrection many times over, he seemed in control. Yet, we come to this section of the last hours of Jesus and we suddenly feel like Jesus is out of control. If you feel that way, you're certainly not alone. Even the disciples who were there for three years of Jesus' ministry with him felt this way and in turn acted in response to the seemingly out of controlness of Jesus. But what might seem like Jesus being out of control is actually Jesus showing the disciples then and us now that Jesus is over all of it. Nothing is outside God's sovereignty. And so this is going to be our second point this morning. We're going to see Jesus resting in the Father in verses 47 through 53. And so I'm going to reread verses 47 through 48 to begin. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And this is going to be our first subpoint: the sovereign kiss. A couple weeks ago, we worked through the Lord's Supper. And at the end of the supper, Jesus tells his disciples that the one who betray him has his hand on the table. John, in his gospel, records that after he gave Judas his morsel of bread, he told Judas, what you're going to do, go do quickly. Judas was God's chosen instrument to ultimately betray him. 
Judas had always been God's chosen instrument. Judas, betraying Jesus, was not an accident. Judas Judas willingly betrayed him. The text says that he was leading them later. But Jesus was not surprised by his betrayal. And it's amazing to think that when Jesus called Judas to come and follow him, that he knew then that he would ultimately betray him. What's even more amazing to think is that the very lips that kissed and betrayed Jesus were the very lips that were foreknown by Jesus before the creation of the world. Judas was always going to betray Jesus. The question is, why? Why would Jesus choose Judas to betray him? Why would he bring him into his inner circle and then betray him? But we can't stop at that question. If we're going to ask the question about Judas and his purposes, we also have to ask, why did Jesus choose Peter, who we're going to see, that was predicted last week and we're going to see next week, betrays Jesus three times. I hope you picked up on it through this sermon, but there's been a common theme throughout this passage, and that theme is trust. Jesus perfectly trusted God the Father to remove the cup from him, if it were possible. This is why he has been able to do everything he's done up to this point in his life, because he trusts the Father. And we see this most clearly in his prayers. This theme of trust extends into the selection of the disciples as well. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him. Jesus also knew that Peter would deny him three times. Yet Jesus perfectly trusted his Father in heaven to accomplish his purposes for the salvation of sinners and for the glory of God. If Jesus could willingly trust and submit to his Father in heaven, even while knowing that two of his best friends would betray him and deny him in the end, how much more can we trust him with our daily lives? For this is why Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. This is exactly what Jesus was trusting his father for. He was trusting that no matter what, God was going to accomplish his purposes and it was all going to be for good. For Judas, his purposes led to his own death but eternal life for those who would place their trust in Jesus. For Peter, it led to his restoration and and Peter becoming a martyr for the faith for which we still stand on today. Human institutions are going to fail us. Friends are going to disappoint you and family is going to turn their back on you. But all of it, when placed in the trust of God, works together for good and his purposes for trust in the Father and his sovereignty. That's the only thing we can do. It was the only thing Jesus could do. And after Judas betrays Jesus, we get a glimpse that the disciples had a misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do as well, which leads us to our second subpoint: man's misunderstanding and sovereign compassion. Read uh, 49 through 51 with me. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And these verses show another incredible comparison with the previous verses that we looked at. First, you have Jesus telling the disciples to arm themselves and to fight with the power of prayer so that they would not enter into temptation. But we saw that instead of fighting, they fell asleep. Now fast forward to what we just read. You now see the disciples realize that their hour, that their master had been predicting and warning about, is here. And what do they do? They jump up and take action. But not with prayer, but with swords. And instead of Jesus fighting with them, you actually see him resting in the Father. And I was meditating on these verses. I kept thinking to myself over and over, why were the disciples so dumb? Why did they miss Jesus's warnings? And one of uh, my seminary professors exhorted us in class to never read the gospels or the Bible in general with the thought, I would have never done that. It's not only a terrible way to read the Bible, but it's also lying to yourself. You are that guy. You are Israel. In Kevin DeYoung's biggest story uh, Bible, he perfectly describes Israel and us. He says that we fail to see how good God is 
and how truly terrible our sin is. But to continue the introspection question here, I came to was where am I trusting in the weapons and the view of the world instead of the sovereign plan and word of God? For instance, I think many of us in the West live in a sort of make-believe world where we read the Bible as an old, ancient, Near East book that was written a long, long time ago and comfortably assume that Jesus' prophecies and his predictions about the future are not for us. In Luke 21, Jesus tells us that you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Over and over again, Jesus is telling us that the trial is coming, persecution is coming, the sword is coming. Yet day after day after day, we continually get surprised when this comes. Why? I truly believe it's because we aren't taking Jesus at his word. Just as the disciples didn't take him at his word. He told them that he was going, that he was going to be betrayed and handed over. And what did they do? Peter draws his sword and cuts off a man's ear. So as you read scripture, as you read Jesus' words or the letters of the apostles, take heed. Listen. Don't neglect the warnings. Don't skip over the hard things. But also, make no mistake, the Bible is not just full of warnings. It's also full of sweet, sweet promises that you can take to the bank every single day. So take heed of the warnings and clench tightly to his promises and trust them to bring you home to him. And not only do we see the disciples' misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do, but we also see his compassion towards his enemies while being betrayed. Verse 50 says he touched his ear and healed him. So even when the disciples are confused and scared, Jesus continues to teach his disciples what being a subject in God's kingdom looks like. Jesus puts his money where his mouth is and shows the disciples what he meant when he said to love your enemies. If you remember, probably now two years ago, in Jesus' sermon on the plain in Luke 6, Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And so sure, every year when it comes time for the Cat Grizz game, it's hard to love Bobcat fans like Devin Leader. But it's another story to love and forgive those that are about to deliver you up to be tortured and killed. Yet in this passage, we see Jesus in one of the darkest moments of his life, continuing to teach his disciples what it truly looks like to love someone. Truly loving someone, loving your enemy, often comes at a great cost to yourself. But what does Jesus remind us of earlier in that same sermon on the plain in Luke 6? He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. So why are we to rejoice and leap for, jo rejoice and leap for joy? Because our reward is great in heaven. You see, this world expects retribution for evil. It expects for a wrong to be made right. People are crying from the streets, justice, justice, justice. But where is true justice found? And while this isn't a bad question, I think a better question to ask is in whom is perfect justice found? There's a Christian rap group, or you could call them a spoken word artist, called Beautiful Eulogy. And they have this line that I've just, I've never forget, it's always in my head, uh, from this song called Slain. And it says, I'm not afraid to talk about social injustices. Let's also talk about the throne where perfect justice is. It sounds insensitive, and some will hate the stench of it. But the church is not faithful if we fail to mention it. We worship a God who can speak to the world's pain because salvation for us came through the lamb who was slain. So you see that Jesus is teaching his disciples then and us now that compassion to our enemies can be done because ultimately justice finds its beginning and end with him. For justice will either be doled out on the final day, on judgment day on an individual, or it will be fulfilled on the cross of Jesus on that final day. So have compassion. Love your enemies. Pray that God would give you the power to forgive those who have hurt you or betrayed you 
We don't have that power within us or in ourselves. It is given to us by the Spirit through Jesus. So ask for it. Ask for help from the one who is justice in himself. And this leads us to our last sub-point this morning, the sovereign darkness. So I hate horror movies. I'm sorry if you like them, but I have never understood why people pay money to watch bad movies. You don't, but you don't have to waste your money to know that most horror movies take place at night. And I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm sure the number is somewhere around 100%. <laughs> and so the reason horror movies take place at night is because it hints at the spiritual darkness that is always implied in these movies. As someone who worked night shift for almost 10 years in the ER, I can personally tell you that that is 100% true, that bad things happen at night and spiritual darkness abounds. And now something that has been understood but not actually said in this passage is that this is all happening at night. They move from the Lord's Supper to the Mount of Olives, so this entire scene is draped in darkness. Now, there are not a lot of scenes in the Gospels that occur at night besides Jesus going away to pray in the early morning hours or Jesus' ministry stretching into the night. So all of Jesus' interactions, especially with the religious elite, happen in the daylight. But besides this scene, there's one other that really stands out. And so kids, if you're listening, can you think of this, probably Jesus' famous, most famous conversation that happens at night? So if you can't remember, it's John 3, where we get John 3.16 from, but it's, his, it's Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus came in sincerity that night. He came to ask good questions. He was a true seeker. Yet he came in the middle of the night. Why? Because John was showing that not only that Nicodemus was too afraid to ask these questions during the day, where others might see him, but more importantly, to show this dark spiritual nature of Nicodemus's heart. He was still blinded by the darkness. So here in this passage, we have the religious elite coming to arrest Jesus at night with swords and clubs as if they were coming after a robber, verse 52 says. The religious elite knew that if they came and arrested Jesus during the day, that the crowds wouldn't allow it. For the crowds we saw at the very beginning of Holy Week was the triumphal entry. The crowds loved Jesus. They wanted to see the Messiah, the one that was healing people. So what did the religious elite do? They came in the night. They came when no one could dispute them. Jesus tells them in verse 53 that he was with them in the daytime, day after day in the temple, yet they did nothing to him. Yet here and now they come to arrest him in the night. And we'll see in the coming weeks that they put him on trial during the night when there would be no resistance to condemn him to death. The night was showing the darkness inside everyone's heart there. This was the spiritual battle we have been talking about manifesting itself in the darkness of the night. And it seems the night has won. Darkness has won. Jesus has been betrayed by a trusted friend, and now everything the disciples had worked for was over. But pay close attention to the last half of verse 53. Jesus says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Your hour, not ours, one hour. One hour of the 24 in a day was theirs. One hour was given to darkness to do its bidding. Now, don't get me wrong. This one hour was the darkest hour in human history. In this hour, the creator God who knitted the bodies of the men in their, their mother's womb, who stood before them, was about to be put on trial and put to death by these, those very men. The creator God who made the tree that was made into two beams of wood would be hung, he would be hung on this tree that he spoke into being. So make no mistake, this was the evilest hour that will ever exist. But, but, the darkness was only given one hour. And through this evil hour, the greatest good came to be. For in this hour, the Lamb of God would die in the place of sinners and would take away the sin of the world. In this hour, the serpent's head would be crushed. In this hour, salvation for people from every tribe, nation, and tongue was bought. And in this hour, our God became sin for us. 
but there was soon coming an hour that would last forever. Jesus says just a couple hours later in the front of the Sanhedrin when he's on trial, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He sits down because the work is finished. The serpent is dead and the king is on his throne. And that hour lasts forever. Darkness doesn't have the final say. Jesus has the final say. So if you're sitting here this morning and all you've known in your life is darkness, then please don't miss this. If all you've ever known in this life is the sins of others against you and the sin pouring out of your own heart, then hear these words. The one whom John says is the light of men has come. He has come to bring light to the darkness in your heart. He is faithful and just to forgive you. So repent, confess your sins, and walk into the light of forgiveness that Jesus can give you. And dear brothers and sisters of this church, when the night seems dark, when you feel like you can't see out of the darkness, when sin seems to crash over you like a wave, remember this. Remember that Jesus in his darkest hour perfectly obeyed. And he did the will of the Father and drank the cup that was meant for you and for me. So run to this Jesus. Trust in this Jesus until he brings each and every one of us home. Let's pray. Father, what mercy and grace it is to be known by you, for you to pay the penalty in your body for what we did. Father, you came, became a curse for us. And we can never repay this, Father, but we can worship you. And so, Father, may we all leave here loving you more, Father, for what you have done, for what you have accomplished on the cross because you have sat down. It is finished. We no longer have to work for our salvation. We no longer have to work to please you. Jesus has done that perfectly. And so, Father, if there are those in the room that do not know you, Father, I pray that you would save them. Father, that they would put their trust in you, in your work, in your name, And Father, may those that um, know you, Father, may they be strengthened. May they be encouraged. And Father, may they trust you with their entire lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.